0: Let's open up in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bibles. We are continuing in our spiritual warfare and the armor of God series. This is part 6. We're going to be looking at the shield of faith this morning. So as we've been doing, we'll read the whole passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And then we'll kind of talk about verse 16 in the shield of faith. I'll be reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible this morning. Let's start reading in Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. For all the saints. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've been teaching us in your word. Thank you for the way that you've been equipping us, instructing us, enabling us to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Lord, I just want to testify, it's been so helpful in my life. In a difficult season, On a difficult day, I'm so thankful, God, for your word and for the power of your Holy Spirit who enables us to stand firm against our enemy, Satan, and the strength of our Savior, Jesus. And we pray together this morning as a church that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. You'd give us feet to follow after you hard. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would so exalt the person of Christ and his work in our hearts and our minds that everything else would pale in comparison, that our problems would seem small in light of Jesus and his glory and his wonder, and yet we would receive tremendous help in our difficulties from our wonderful Savior. So teach us this morning. We pray that you would enable me to teach and preach your word in a way that brings glory to Christ and is faithful and that you would enable us to follow after you for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, verse 16 is what we're looking at. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith. It says in addition to all, so I thought I would take this moment to remind us what the all is about and those previous pieces of armor that we've been talking about and a little bit what we learned. So The first piece of armor that we talked about was the belt of truth. Look on the screen there, the belt of truth. And you remember that every piece of the armor of God presents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed, right? It's not just a simple prayer of God, put the belt of truth on me. There's something we actually do to actuate this promise of God. So the something to be believed with the belt of truth is you'll remember, that was your cue, thank you. For every lie that the enemy is telling us, we search the word for corresponding combative scriptures. The lies that the enemy is trying to say, what is the truth of the word of God? What does it say? And then we stand firm on that truth and those promises, and this defeats the schemes of the enemy against us. It's something to be believed and putting on the belt of the truth. And there is something to be obeyed. And that is that we're to practice honesty and integrity, dishonesty. Lies, deception, falsehood, all of these things are the realm of the enemy. Jesus is truth. His realm is the realm of truth. So when we endeavor in our lives to function and move in the realm of truth, we're partnering with God. When we practice lies and deception, whether it be with our spouses or in business or with our friends, we're kind of partnering with the enemy and moving in his realm. And the effect of this, I don't know how we're going to fit. Oh, good job fitting that on the screen. The effect of the belt of truth is that it holds us together, so to speak. You remember, it was the first thing that the soldier would put on and it held the rest of all his garb together and he would hang his sword and all the other stuff from it. It holds us together and it keeps us free flowing. You remember that the soldier had sort of a robe-like tunic underneath all of his armor. And if he didn't have a belt in which he could gird it up and tie it into that belt, he wouldn't be free flowing. Going for the battle. Moving in the truth keeps us free flowing in life rather than caught up in all the deception and the web of lies. And so it defeats and it thwarts the plan of the enemy in our life. And then after that, we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. Something to be believed with the breastplate of righteousness is imputed righteousness. That we're saved not according to a righteousness of our own, but when we put our faith in Christ and what he's done for us, his righteousness, his perfect record, is credited to our account. So our standing before God is that in Christ. His righteousness is ours. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God who have merit before God because we are in Christ, identified with him through our faith. And practical righteousness is something to be obeyed. You'll remember we said that so many of our problems come from the fact that we just refuse to obey God in so many areas of our lives. And so sometimes we're our worst, our own worst enemies. But when we pursue righteousness, we partner with God and we break off partnership with the enemy. And the effect of this is that as a breastplate guarded sort of the most vital organs on the soldier, righteousness, guards our deepest places of emotion, desire, will, and drive. Those things that form thought, feeling, and action are guarded by the imputed righteousness of God that's ours through faith in Christ and practical righteousness as we endeavor to obey Jesus in our lives. And then finally, we talked about last week the shoes of the gospel of peace. Something to be believed there is that we have peace with God through the gospel. That when we fail, once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God is not angry at us. He's not hostile toward us. We've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through Christ so that we could rest in that relationship and that brings us much joy. Something to be obeyed is that we are all called to the proclamation of the gospel, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us and the world beyond us through the way that we live And the things that we say, demonstration of the gospel and proclamation of the gospel. And the effect of this piece of the armor is that it keeps us moving toward God when we're failing, when we're sinning. Because we already have peace with God, so we don't need to cower and be afraid and hide from God. We can go to God and confess our sins and be forgiven. Keeps us moving toward God, these shoes do. And they keep us moving with God on mission. Joining with God on mission in the world as the gospel and therefore the kingdom go forth as an offensive measure against the enemy in the domain of darkness. And then we want to remind ourselves that the fullness of this imagery of the armor of God is really found in Christ. Christ Himself is truth, Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our peace. So we find the fullest expression of being guarded by God in this armor through Christ who he is and what he's done for us. Now, when we get to in verse 16, the shield of faith, this is where belief and action really come together in one thing. It says in verse 16, in addition to all, take up the field of faith, field of faith, gosh, shield of faith, thank you. Help me, Jesus. The shield of faith. When it says in addition to all, some of your translations might say above all. It doesn't mean that the shield of faith is more important than the rest of the gifts or better than the rest of the gifts. The idea is that the shield of faith is an indispensable addition. Remember in the previous verse, in verse 11, it said, take up the full armor of God. We need all of the pieces Right? You wouldn't want to see a soldier going into battle, and he just had the breastplate and the helmet, but he didn't have a shield, right? He'd be incomplete. He needs a shield, and he needs shoes. You don't want him, no zapatos in battle, right? He needs the Spanish for shoes. He needs shoes too. But the shield of faith is an indispensable part of the Christian's defense against the enemy in all occasions, and so we're told to take it up. When Paul uses those words, take it up, it was a military phrase. It was a command to take it up. Now, verse 16, I'm going to give us a little outline that's going to help us sort of see what's contained here, an outline of what is contained in verse 16. Number one, we're going to see revelation about the schemes of Satan. Number two, we're going to see that we have protection through faith in Christ And number three, interestingly, we're going to see that we have connection with one another in community. First point there, revelation about the schemes of Satan. Notice in verse 16, it talks about the flaming missiles of the evil one. The flaming missiles of the evil one. Here's the imagery that's being evoked there. Of course, all of this imagery is being drawn not only from Isaiah and the references of God and the Messiah having armor on them against their foes, but also from the warfare that Paul would have witnessed in the Roman Empire and with Roman soldiers. And one of the things that armies would do as a tactic back then is they would take arrows, they had bows and arrows. Anybody shoot bows and arrows these days? I have a compound bow. It's the funnest thing in the world. No, nobody's feeling that? Okay, anyway. <laughs> I was trying to get some hunting buddies, but never mind. Uh, they had bows and arrows in those days, and they would fire them at one another, and they might take their arrow, and they would put this substance on the end, this material that was kind of like cotton, and they would dip it in pitch, which is kind of like tar and oil, and they would light it, and then they would fire it toward the enemy. So that's sort of the imagery that's being evoked from that culture here for us and talking about the scheme of the enemy. He's telling us through that metaphorical language, the enemy has flaming missiles, Satan does. The simile here is this. Thoughts fired at us by Satan are like, that's what a simile is, what is it like, are like flaming arrows that go deep and burn and spread if not extinguished. Thoughts from the enemy pierce us, they burn us, and they consume us if they're not dealt with. So the effect then on the Christian is that they cause us to think and act in ways that are not consistent with Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. So Satan tries to get us to act in ways that are incongruous with our faith in Christ by planting thoughts in our hearts and our minds. Now here's an interesting theological point. Satan, it seems, can plant thoughts in our hearts and our minds, That's sort of a daunting idea, which is why we're so thankful for the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. But we don't like that idea, do we? Those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again. We have a new nature. We're in Christ. We do not like the idea that Satan has some access to our hearts and our minds. We're uncomfortable with that, and we should be. And I don't know how that works out um, metaphysically. I don't know the metaphysics of that. I don't, I don't understand that, and Scripture doesn't tell us that clearly. But we see some examples of it. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was with his disciples on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and he had taken them to a place called Caesarea Philippi which was a hotbed of idol and cultic worship at that time. And he he stood on this bedrock in front of all these false gods that people were worshiping. And he asked Peter and the boys, who do the people say that I am? And you remember Peter, kind of the spokesman of the group spoke up and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So God had given Peter some sort of revelation in that moment as to the identity of Christ. Then what happened next was very interesting. Jesus revealed to Peter and the boys the fact that he would be going to Jerusalem and there he would be crucified but then rise from the dead three days again. And Peter didn't like the idea of Jesus being crucified and said to him, it says he took him aside, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, don't rebuke Jesus, man. And he said to Jesus, may this never be. No, this is not a good plan. I'm not into your plan, Jesus. You getting crucified, nailed to a cross doesn't sound good. And look at how Jesus responded. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Isn't that interesting? Now, Peter isn't Satan, and Satan isn't Peter. But the Lord rebuked Satan because somehow Satan had implanted this thought in the mind of Peter. He said to Peter, Peter, you're thinking wrong thoughts. You're not thinking about God's plan. You're thinking about a different plan. That, that's radical. One moment, Peter had his thoughts influenced by God. The next minute, influenced by the enemy. Does, does anybody ever feel like they experience this sort of thing? Okay, I'm seeing a few heads nod. Here's another example. In Acts chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. At that moment in the church, uh, don't put that up there yet, please. At that moment, my cues are very hard to follow. You're doing a great job, Diane. At that moment in the church, people were like selling everything they owned and bringing it to the rest of the church and just divvying it up. Like there's this radical community thing happening. None of us are doing that, but wouldn't that be fun for some of us? And Ananias and Sapphira owned all this property and they sold it and said, we're gonna bring all the money to the church. Nobody told them they had to do that. They didn't have to do that. They wanted to do that, but they secretly kept some of it back. So they were looking for the applause of man. They were looking for the approval of the leaders. They wanted to be seen as generous and awesome. They're like, look, we sold everything, and we're bringing all the money to the church. They kept some of it back, which was totally their prerogative. But they were dishonest about it. And Peter knew somehow by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and look what it says in Acts 5.3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Again, the salient point is this somehow Satan had access to the heart of this believer to implant their wrong ideas, false motive, deception, wrong things, and over concern for self. Satan can plant thoughts in our hearts and minds, it seems. What kind of thoughts might he plant there? Well, it doesn't take a lot of imagination. Most of us have a pretty good experience with this. They're going to be evil thoughts usually, right? But Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul said in Corinthians. So they're not always overtly evil. They're usually very easy to rationalize, to justify, right? Evil very seldom appears evil on the surface, and it never reveals its price tag. They're often going to be evil, insidious, deceptive thoughts. They might be burning desires. Have you ever been in church or anywhere else or just sitting anywhere else and there's just this horrific burning desire comes into your thought, into your mind that seems overwhelming? It might be hatred. Have you ever been sitting around doing nothing, mind your business, the next minute you know you're convinced that you absolutely hate this person? Could be jealousy, irrational fear, overwhelming anxiety. Could be something that irritates immensely about someone else or just in a situation or just at a time. Could be malice towards somebody. Often the thoughts that the enemy plants have to do with doubt. Okay, this is a big one, and this is where the shield of faith gets very pertinent. They have to do with doubt. The first way that the enemy wants to fire darts at us with doubt is creating doubts about God, his word, his intentions, and his character. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see an example of this. Genesis is at the beginning Genesis chapter three, little example of this from Adam and Eve and the Fall of Man. Now as backdrop, we'll look at what the Lord said to them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, "From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Any tree of the garden you may eat freely." But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, did God really say You can't. Is this really what God was saying? Is this really what God meant? Do you see here the idea being inserted of rationalization, of questioning, of doubting? Is this really what God meant? Is that actually what God was saying? Verse 2 And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. So the enemy tried to plant doubt about what God said. She responded correctly. Well, here's what God said. And then look what the enemy says in verse four. And the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Notice what the enemy was doing here. The enemy was questioning God's word. And then he was questioning God's character when he says in verse five, God knows it," in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. In other words, what God is really doing, Eve, is wanting to hold good things back from you. Eve, you deserve this. You deserve more than God has given you. Is this really how you want your life to be, Eve, that you can't have that thing? Everybody else has it. Everybody else is eating forbidden fruit. This is, you know, I'm taking liberty now. Nobody else was in the garden at the time, but... (laughs) That's what the enemy tells you. You get what I'm saying. Everyone else is having forbidden fruit. I mean, you turn on TV and what are shows written around? They're written around forbidden fruit. And so what the enemy implants in our mind is this idea. God wants to actually withhold from you that which is good. Do you really think that's what God meant? Did God really mean that that's wrong? And the moment Satan implants those thoughts, right, in us, did God really say, then we easily partner with him and go, yeah, he probably didn't really mean that. I mean, what does he actually really mean by adultery? I mean, what does he really mean by drunkenness? I mean, what does he really mean by not lying? Surely he's not talking about little white lies. What does it really mean to honor your mother and father? What does it really mean? Right, And then we're just on the slippery slope because the enemy planted these little thoughts. Is that really what God said? You're not actually going to die. God's not telling you the truth. The consequences aren't going to be that bad. Don't look at the price tag. God is trying to withhold from you something good. The enemy implants thoughts in our minds that have to do with God's word, what God has said, his integrity, and his character, trying to cast aspersion on them. The second way that the enemy will try to put doubt in our heads is with our identity in Christ. Do you remember at the end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then when he was baptized and came out of the water, the dove, the Holy Spirit descended upon him or the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the sky opened up and the voice of the Father came out saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? And then after that, Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And then Satan came to tempt him. And the first thing that Satan says was, if you really are the son of God, then, and ask him to turn the bread to stones. And then he says it again. If you really are the son of God, then, and ask him to throw himself down from the temple and have this big miracle happen and all this hoopla. In other words, The enemy plants doubt in our minds about our identity in Christ through faith in him that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God and says, if you're really a son or daughter of God, then do better. Sin less. Give more. Pray more. Read more. Serve more. If you really are the child of God, you'll do this, this, that, and the other. Right? He's planting doubts in our minds about our identity before God through faith in Christ, trying to get us to perform when the truth is we've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith alone, amen? Amen. But he's trying to cast aspersion. The flip side of that coin is when we fail to do those things that Satan wants us to do, then he's there to accuse us and go, how dare you call yourself a Christian? How dare you call yourself a son of God? a daughter of God. You don't measure up to that. And then he wants us in condemnation, shame, and guilt. And it all started with a little bit of doubt as to our identity in Christ. So it becomes very important then that we receive, that we have this protection, which is a shield of faith through faith in Christ. So verse 16 says, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all. The shield of faith. Now the imagery here is that of a large shield. Sometimes the Romans also had those little round shields, but what's being spoken of here is one of these large shields. You can see it as our artist painted it here. It was four feet tall and two and a half feet wide. It was made of wood and metal covered in animal skins often that had been soaked in water, right? So the fire wasn't a problem. We have protection through faith in Christ. The imagery is of this large shield. The simile, the what is it like that's being said here is this. Faith in Christ, when we take it up as we're being told to do, is like a shield that protects us from and extinguishes the enemy's lies and accusations. And the effects are this. Protects us by causing us to think and act in ways that are consistent with who Christ is, what he's done for us, and what he's going to do. Faith protects us, from the thoughts implanted by the enemy in our hearts and minds. Causes us to act and think in a way that's consistent with Christ and what he's done for us. Now, we need to define faith as it is in this context so we can get a full understanding of what the shield is. When we're talking about faith here, we're talking about faith in Christ alone. Can I get an amen? Amen. Faith in Christ alone. We're not talking about faith in faith, We're not talking about faith in yourself, okay? We're not talking about faith in Obama. We're not talking about, thank you, Jesus. We're not talking about (laughs) faith in culture or faith in your friends or faith in your family. We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nor are we talking about faith in your desired outcome. This is an important one. I recently had a friend who was in the hospital and uh, it was a life-threatening thing. And they got out of the hospital and they got better and it was awesome and it was wonderful and we're so glad about that. But another one of my friends said this, oh, God is so faithful. Now, that's a true statement. God is faithful but they were making that statement in light of the fact that this person got better and got out of the hospital. In other words, they were saying God is faithful because their desired outcome had come to pass. We're not talking about faith in a desired outcome. If we have that, there are times in lives, in our lives where we might be shipwrecked. If, if your desired outcome is that you're always prosperous and you have enough money, what happens when that investment goes bad? What happens when you lose your job? Is that now, does that mean God isn't faithful because life is hard all of a sudden? Today is one year since my daughter Daisy died of cancer. I desperately wanted her to get better and to live. That was my desired outcome. It didn't happen. She died. The Christian is still able to say, God is faithful because our faith is in Christ who has proven himself and dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead and who has promised to return to right everything that has gone wrong. Our faith is not in our own desired outcomes. Our faith is in him who has risen and so proved himself to be true. You see how it's very important where we put our faith. Her statement, God is faithful, is right, but it's not God is faithful because he healed this one guy. What about the millions of people that died that day? What about all the babies who were aborted in Santa Barbara and Ventura County that day? What about the kids in Africa who starved that day? What about the people that died on the streets of disease that day? Does that mean God isn't faithful? No, you see, that's not the case. God is faithful, and we have faith in Christ alone, who has risen and so shown himself to be the one in whom we can put our trust. The other thing we have to understand about faith is this that we're talking here with the shield of faith about walking faith. We're not talking about saving faith, but walking faith. It says in Habakkuk in the Old Testament, the righteous shall walk by faith. And then three times in New Testament reverberates that. In Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, the Christian is to walk by faith. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. Not saving faith, we're talking about walking faith, faith for daily living. And how we might define that is this way. Faith is belief faith and action combined, okay? It's belief and action combined. This is where something to believe and something to be obeyed come together in this piece of armor. The shield of faith speaks of belief and action combined. It's not enough to just believe in the truths about Jesus Christ and his work. James chapter two says, the demons believe in that and they're terrified of him. There's some action that is to take place. The shield of faith is belief plus action. It's acting on, acting according to what is true about Jesus and his work. And what is true about Jesus and what is true about his work on our behalf is always being attacked by Satan. Those ideas might be implanted in our hearts and our minds or they might be printed in the newspaper or they might be in the biggest movie or they might be on your favorite show, or they might be embedded in the music that we listen to. But the true identity of Christ is the only unique son of God and the only savior of the world who proved it by rising from the dead. And his work on the cross for us, which is the only way by which we can be saved and go to heaven, will always, by every means possible, be attacked by the enemy. That's what was happening in Genesis 3. That's what was happening in Matthew chapter 4. And Satan will fire these little darts of doubt into our own hearts. Now, you must understand, everybody doubts from time to time. Doubt is not, listen to me, Christian, listen to me. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is the proof of faith. Because the missiles of the enemy concerning doubt are an attack on faith. The evidence that you have faith in Jesus Christ is that from time to time you feel attacked in those beliefs about Jesus and what he's done for you. The enemy doesn't need to attack you if you have no faith. But if all of a sudden you find yourself wondering, I don't know if this whole thing is really true. I don't know if I'm really saved by grace or faith. I don't know if it really pays off to follow Jesus. I don't know if he's really risen from the dead. I'm not sure if he's really coming again. Can we really trust God's word? That's an attack on faith, which you have. And when we stand firm in faith, then our doubts can actually become the fertile ground in which faith blossoms and grows when we face and confront those doubts. So we all have our faith attacked from time to time and we also need to know that it's not, excuse me, it's not wrong to doubt, but it is wrong to act according to doubt. It is wrong to act according to doubt. That's what Eve and Adam were doing. That's what Peter was doing. Remember in Matthew chapter 14 when they were stuck out on the boat and the waves were big and Jesus came walking on the water in the early morning hours before dawn. And they're like, what? It's Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, then call me to come walk to you. And Jesus is like, wow, this guy's crazy. Okay, Peter, come on, walk on the water. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Remember that? And then it says, and he looked and he saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink. He got his eyes off of Jesus, which when he had his eyes on Jesus, who he is and what he could do, he was full of faith and he was actually walking on water. And instead he got his eyes on the circumstances, the wind and the waves, the economy and the sickness and the difficulties and the betrayal and the hurt and the anger and the bitterness and the addiction. And when he put his eyes on those things instead of on Jesus, he began to sink. And Jesus grabbed him and pulled him up and said, oh, Peter, why did you doubt? It's not a sin to doubt, but it's a sin to act upon, to begin to sink into those doubts. So the next slide. Shield of faith is belief plus action or said in another way, and this has been helpful for me. The shield of faith is truth plus Therefore. Follow me on this. The shield of faith is truth plus therefore. Faith functions as a shield when we begin to work out the implications of what we believe. This is why we're offering so many courses this spring, to help us begin to work out the implications of our faith, to begin to walk further in it. In other words, just to say this. The shield of faith is to say, I believe Christ is the truth. He is my righteousness and he is my peace. Therefore, this and this and this must follow. See, the shield of faith is the working out of the implications of what we believe about Jesus. And when we say, therefore, we are moving from mere belief into faith that functions as a shield. We have to have the therefore. The demons believe and they shudder. There's no therefore. We need to have this therefore that moves us into action. I believe this, therefore I will behave in this way. I believe this, therefore I won't behave this way. You see, faith is particularizing. It's taking a general truth and applying it to our particular situations and saying, if this is true about Jesus and his work, then this must follow. And so I will or will not do this, that, or the other. In other words, when we have a horrific, perverse thought pop into our minds, we're able to say, if it's true that I'm a new creation in Christ through having put my faith in him, that I'm born again, that I have a new nature, and that my mind is being renewed and washed in the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, then this thought is not of me. This thought is of the enemy. Therefore, I don't have to believe it. I'm not gonna partner with it. There's no way I'm gonna act upon it and I'm not gonna pour fuel on the fire. Because of my new identity in Christ as a son or daughter of God, born again with a new nature, therefore, I'm not gonna entertain that thought. I'm not gonna act upon that thought when we fail more often than we want to, when we sin as Christians. Because I was chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world and been saved by his finished work on the cross, therefore, I'm not going to despair. I'm not going to stay in shame. I'm not going to stay in condemnation. I'm going to confess my sins to God and he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. When we're overwhelmed with the difficulties of lives, of our lives and the people that we've lost, We remember Christ is for us. Who can be against us? Therefore, I'm not going to return evil with evil. When I think about my daughter, Daisy, I wanted to be with Jesus a year ago. Jesus promised that he's coming again and that he's bringing with him those who have died in Christ and that he will restore all things, and that one day we'll be together in glory. Therefore, though I'm given permission to hurt by God and to weep before God, even as Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, therefore, I don't have to move into destructive behavior when I miss my daughter because of the promises of Christ, because this is true about resurrection after the dead. Therefore, I'm not overwhelmed and ruined by my pain and my loss. But there is this seed of hope that keeps me standing firm against the missiles of the enemy. Does that make sense? Good. Now, I have found that a big problem with this is our own feelings. A large problem for us is that we become accustomed to believing our feelings as though they were facts. A big problem is that we've become accustomed to believing our feelings as though they were facts. We feel all sorts of ways. My wife and I the other night went to Foster Freeze on uh, Valentine's. Fancy date. (laughs) Super high roller, baby. Like, baby, I'll take you anywhere you want to go tonight. We actually got a pizza from Rusty's. And then we went to Foster Freeze. And we got chocolate malt to share. Dude, Foster Freeze has the best malts. Have you, yes, yes they do. Have you ever had a peach malt from Foster Freeze? Crazy good. Go get one today. Let's storm them. 600 people right after church. Let's show up at Foster Freeze and be like, we want a peach malt. So we got a chocolate malt. And we split one, thankfully, and we killed that thing. You know when you get to the end of Trying to get the last bit. And that night, our stomachs were so jacked up. Just, oh. And all these feelings come with that because you're laying up in the middle of the night and you're all gassy and you feel bloated and... Now you're feeling ashamed because you ate so much and then you're feeling condemned because you're a glutton and then you're feeling mad because she can eat whatever she wants and she never gets fat and I have one shake and I'm like, <laughs> and all these feelings, this is an out of control way of saying <laughs> our feelings are so easily affected by so many superfluous things. And what our culture has trained us to do is to not question those feelings, but to run after them and to dive into them. We need to bring them before the word of God and say, is what I am feeling true? I feel betrayed. Is that true? Okay, there's a certain way to deal with that. I feel vengeance coming on. Okay, is that true? I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. I feel mad. I feel entitled. That's a big one. Or I feel despondent, I feel depressed, I I feel like I should despair. And we just don't even question our feelings anymore according to the truth of the Word of God. Instead, we begin to just act upon our feelings indiscriminately. And when we do that, we are so often defeated because our feelings are not facts. The Word of God is fact. And what we're to do is examine our feelings and the... Intended actions that go along with them in light of the word of God. Listen to me. Jesus said, You cannot serve two masters concerning God and money. We can also say this You cannot serve two masters concerning feelings and truth. And so 2 Corinthians 10 says this. We have it on the screen. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, things the enemy builds up. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, doubt, untruths, questioning his integrity, his character, and our identity. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, every thought needs to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, what is this thought and what does it mean in light of God's word and what he has said? Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That we have to do that means that every thought that we have is not from God and it's not necessarily from our new nature. We've got sinful thoughts, Romans chapter 7, and we've got the enemy's thoughts implanted in us. Every thought that would endeavor to inform and move the way that we act and feel, needs to be grabbed onto and brought into obedience before Jesus Christ. The truth of who he is, the love of God revealed in him, his work upon the cross to forgive us our sins, his resurrection from the dead, which defeated the enemy, and his promise coming again. In those things, we stand firm. And then we evaluate our thoughts and our feelings according to those truths. And what we must avoid doing is providing fuel for the enemy's fiery darts. Fuel for the enemy's fiery darts. I mean, said simply, this is just sin. So if, if we're giving ourselves to greed, when the enemy sends us greedy thoughts, there's a lot of fuel there. His little flaming missile hits our own greedy thoughts and our own greedy practices and phew, Fire. If we're practicing sexual immorality, right, then he, he sends us immoral sexual thoughts and it hits our own impure sexual practices and thought life and fire. If we're holding on to bitterness and malice against people, he sends us lies about them, and then just fire. The reason that we're called to repent of sin, among other reasons, is that it gives the enemy fuel to pierce and to burn in our lives. But the promise of the shield is, again, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. The key is to keep your shield of faith dripping wet with the word of God keep it dripping wet with the word of God. Turn to 1st Peter and we'll end here. Almost. I'm lying. We're not going to end there. I can't lie. I mean I can, but not right now. We'll almost end here. 1st Peter says this. Verse 6. 1st Peter 5. Sorry. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. That means self-controlled. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. See, faith is a victory. Firm in your faith. Right belief and right action together. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing, okay, I'm bringing in the aspect of community here for the final point, which is very brief. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Everyone's going through the same drama, people. You're not the first person it's happened to. Verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while... Now, I've noticed, look at me. I've noticed that when the Bible says a little while, it's almost always longer than we had hoped for. <laughs> That's just the way it is. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're all in this together. So the final point what we see in this verse is that we have connection to one another in community. The imagery there is that this large Roman shield was designed to be interlocked with the shields of fellow soldiers. Being as wide as it was, two-thirds of his body would be behind it. The other third would connect to the soldier next to him and he'd be behind that and that would connect to the one next to him. They'd be behind that and then the ones in the middle of this circle would be holding theirs up because arrows have a trajectory. And they would be holding their shields above their heads. The simile and the effect is shared faith in the community of Christ is like a fortress that thwarts the enemy's schemes. So we actually have a responsibility as Christians to all together take up the shield. Can you imagine if you were a Roman soldier and the enemy was advancing and you said, okay, let's take that formation and you got together and and, and you held up your shields and one guy like forgot his shield and he's next to you and you're like, bro, there's flaming arrows coming at us. Where's your shield? He's like, oh, I didn't take it up. I just didn't think I need to. I mean, I figured you have your shield. You're like, dude, you can have one third of mine, but two thirds of like, where's your shield, dude? You hate being the guy next to the guy who didn't bring his shield. (laughs) Why? Because for sure the enemy's like, oh, no problem right there. (laughs) Right? And then the fire comes in, the fire spreads, now the whole gig is breaking down. We have a responsibility before God to one another to take up the shield of faith together believing the right things about Christ, responding with the right actions in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And sometimes we need to have faith on behalf of one another because sometimes somebody didn't take up the shield of faith. And they're just in a vulnerable place in their life where they couldn't. Man, when my daughter died a year ago, it was was tough for me to take up the shield of faith. But I found that others around me were taking up shields of faith on my behalf. Do you remember? in, oh, I can't remember where it is, Mark chapter two, where Jesus was in the house and he was healing people and teaching and there was a guy who was paralyzed and they couldn't get in the house because it was so crowded and so his homies went up on the roof and they tore off the roof and they lowered this guy before Jesus and it says there in Mark chapter two, and Jesus, seeing their faith, forgave his sins and healed him. Their faith, was effective on his behalf when he was laid out. Sometimes in our faith, we tear off the roof for our friends to get them before Jesus when they're broken and hurting. Other times, we raise the roof. The Roman soldiers in the middle, holding up the shield over, the, over their brothers, raising the roof for those who couldn't do themselves. It's so important as a community to do this together. Therefore, Hebrews 10 let us hold fast to confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, the day of his return drawing near. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The ultimate expression of these things is that God himself is our shield. That's why it's called the armor of God. Look at this verse and as you look at it, stand and we're going to read it together as a declaration of faith. This is about God himself being our shield. Let's read it together out loud. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Yes, Lord, that's our prayer. Thank you, God, that you cover us. Thank you, God, that you're faithful when we're faithless. Thank you that you are our near help and our shield. Thank you, God, that you're our strength. Our hearts trust in you. And therefore, God, we rejoice. And with song, we give you thanks because you've been so good and you are so faithful. We confess that in this life, there's so much that we don't understand and so much that hurts and overwhelms, but we take heart because you have overcome the world and you are faithful and true. And you, Christ, are our righteousness, our hope, our peace, and our salvation. So we rejoice before you in song now.